Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the Architects of Art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. We are very, very deep into the digital world when it comes to music. Virtually every song we could ever want is available to us instantly, no matter where we are. All we need is an internet connection, and we're good to go. The music industry loves this. In the old days, they had no choice but to manufacture, warehouse, transport, and distribute physical product by the ton, sometimes across vast distances. Once these CDs and records and tapes made it into the stores, then the labels had to collect the money from the stores, plus deal with the return of unsold merchandise. It was all very complicated and very expensive. Now with streaming, there is almost... Now with streaming, there's no physical product. All the expensive overhead and those big fixed costs are gone. Digital distribution is so much more efficient and profitable on every single level. And for music fans... This way of obtaining and consuming music is not just convenient, but intoxicating. Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, tens and tens and tens of millions of songs. For older people who remember what it used to be like with record stores, this feels like science fiction. There were also generations who have never, ever set foot inside a record store. They've never, ever handled something like a record or a CD or a cassette. For them, music has always been delivered without any kind of container. It's completely ephemeral, unseen zeros and ones that beam from somewhere. While there will always probably be a demand for music on physical formats, it's going to shrink and shrink and shrink until it's just a very niche thing. All right, so be it. There's, there's just no stopping progress. But we are losing something. There are certain pleasures and advantages to CDs and vinyl. It appears, though, that many of these pleasures and advantages are also heading towards near extinction. I call this digital debris. Here, let me show you what I mean. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the first part of what I call digital debris. Things that music fans are slowly losing as we move more and more towards a streaming-based world. Yes, this is a bit of a lament because while I love so many things about streaming, it cannot replace certain things that we get from buying music on pieces of plastic. And on part one, I want to talk about B-sides and bonus tracks. And we'll start with this song from Blotto called, what else? B-side.
From 1981, that's Blotto with the B-side. Before we go any further, we need to define exactly what we're talking about. When the recorded music industry began in the late 19th century, recordings came on cylinders about the size of a Coke can. It could hold around two minutes of audio, and this was the invention of Thomas Edison. Everything changed when Emil Berliner came up with the idea of a flat rotating disc. It had several advantages over the cylinder. First of all, it was much easier to mass produce. You just stamped out copies like you would coins or hubcaps. Second, a side of one of these discs could hold over three minutes of music compared to two. And third, and this is vital to our discussion here, a flat rotating disc has two sides. This meant that a disc could hold over three times the audio of an Edison cylinder. Now, I should point out that for the first eight or nine years, these discs often only had music on one side. But then in 1908, Columbia Records became the first record company to offer double-sided discs. This was radical and revolutionary. By the time World War I broke out in 1914, cylinders were obsolete, largely because discs could hold more music. But I could not find any record of any label making any big distinction between the two sides of a disc. Each song was considered to be equally important. And that's the way it stayed until the very late 1940s. This is when we encountered the format war between Columbia's 12-inch, 33-and-a-third RPM long-playing album that held lots of songs per side and RCA's 7-inch, 45-RPM record, which stuck with the standard one song per side. That was one development. The other important thing to our story is the rise of television. Now, stay with me on this. When TV came along, radio had to adjust. So many radio stars and their variety shows and their soap operas and their comedies jumped to TV that radio had a programming deficit. Second, it became terribly expensive to feature live musical performances on the radio, something that musicians' unions had insisted upon since the 1920s. So to save money and to find a way of competing with television, radio started playing more and more pre-recorded music. In other words, records. And the records they chose to play most often were the 7-inch single. That format became the currency of radio airplay. And because there was just one song per side, people started calling these records singles. Okay, so which song, which side of the record was supposed to be given preference for radio airplay? At first, it didn't matter. The first 7-inch singles followed in the tradition of giving each song on each side equal weight and merit. However, record companies had started labeling these songs, these sides, with the letters A and B. Now, this wasn't any kind of grading system. It was simply for use in assigning serial numbers. One side of the record would be designated, let's say, 28030-A, while the other would be 28030-B. Which was more important? Didn't matter. Totally random. But as the relationship between the recorded music industry and radio developed, the label started choosing which songs they wanted to be played. And by the early 1960s, which is when RPM singles far outsold albums, the song that was to be given priority by the record company, and hopefully by the radio station, because it had the greatest commercial potential, was increasingly dedicated as the A side. The other side of the record, the B side, also known as the flip side, was usually, but not always, just a placeholder, something to fill the available space. It was considered to have less potential because it somehow was, I don't know, less accessible or not just as good as the song on the A side. It might be a deep album cut 
when albums became the thing in pop music, or it could be an orphan song with nowhere else to go. There were exceptions to this. The Beatles, for example, came to issue putting something inferior on the B-side of their singles. They wanted to give fans as much value as they possibly could. And the result was something known as a double A-side, where both tracks were once again given equal weight. For example, when the Beatles released Penny Lane, big hit, the B-side was Strawberry Fields Forever, another big hit. Hey Jude, on the A-side, came with the fast version of Revolution on the B-side. Come Together was paired with Something. Hello Goodbye was back with I Am The Walrus. The Beatles released a total of 26 double A-sides, and each side was a chart hit on its own. By the way, you may have seen the abbreviation B-stroke-W, as in Hello Goodbye, B-stroke-W, I Am The Walrus. That B-stroke-W stands for Backed With. It's another way of saying this is the B-side. You might also see in rare instances C-stroke-W, which stands for Coupled With, which makes the same thing. There is no C-side, obviously. It's just another way of saying this is the other track. Let's have a listen to a famous B-side. When David Bowie released Starman as a single from the Ziggy Stardust album in 1972, the B-side, the extra after-the-fact song, was this. Suffragette City, originally the B-side to Starman from Ziggy Stardust. But it arguably became the bigger hit in the Bowie canon. Okay, back to our B-side history. As stereo recordings increased in popularity through the 1960s, some 7-inch singles also featured the same song on both sides. The A song was the stereo recording, and the B-side was the mono version for those who had yet to upgrade their record players. This also served the purpose of servicing both mono AM radio stations and stereo FM stations with the same piece of plastic. By the time we got to the early 1970s, albums had overtaken singles as the biggest selling format. This prompted record companies to change tactics. 45 RPM singles were used as promotional tools for selling albums. They continued to service them to radio stations, knowing that airplay would increase album sales. To make sure radio played the right songs, the B-side was more often than not a song that would not work on the radio. In industry parlance, that A-side was known as the single, the consensus track, or the plug track. But sometimes DJs and music directors were unhappy with what the record label wanted them to play. There might be a better song, or occasionally another interesting song, on the B-side. Here are some examples. Elvis Presley's Hound Dog was on the other side of Don't Be Cruel back in 1953. That was just one of the 51 double A-side hits he had in his career. God only knows what the Beach Boys was the B-side to Wouldn't It Be Nice in 1964. You Can't Always Get What You Want by the Rolling Stones began as a B-side to Honky Tonk Woman in 1969. The Rod Stewart hit Maggie May was mated with Reason to Believe as the B-side in 1971. And people don't believe me when I tell you that this song began as an orphaned non-album track. XTC recorded the song for their Skylarking album, but it didn't make the cut because of concerns over its anti-religious message. The only place that you could find it was on the B-side of an official single from the album called Grass. Grass, however, went nowhere. But some college DJs turned the record over and started playing the B-side. It became so popular that all subsequent pressings of the Skylarking album deleted a track called Mermaid Smiled 
so I could include Dear God. Dear God from XTC, once an outtake B-side, but later one of the biggest hits the band ever had. A couple of other things. When singles had designated A-sides and B-sides, many albums tended to number their sides side one and side two. If it was a double album, you had side three and side four. That was the general convention, but you'll also find albums that use A and B and C and D and so on. Cassettes fell somewhere in between. Full albums could be spread across the A-side and a B-side, or side one and side two. But cassette singles, the tape version of the 7-inch 45-RPM single that was around for a while in the 80s and 90s, often had an A-side and a B-side, in keeping with the vinyl tradition. Then we have 12-inch singles. These were records the size of an album. They might play at 33 and a third RPM or 45 RPM. The A-side would feature what the label hoped would be the hit, Well, the B-side featured one or more songs that were, I don't know, just there. Hey, you had 12 inches of vinyl instead of seven. Why not fill it up? Some refer to these releases as maxi-singles. In August 1984, the Smiths released the single William It Was Really Nothing, back with Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want. And, believe it or not, another track, this song, which was considered to be too radical to be anything other than space filler. Uh, it, it didn't quite work out that way. The biggest song the Smiths ever released, but it didn't start out that way. It was originally relegated to mere B-side status. But it was also a new kind of B-side, something that we began to call a bonus track. More on that in just a second. This is part one of a program called Digital Debris, a look at some of the things we're losing in our transition from physical music product to an all-digital, all-streaming world. And this discussion is about B-sides. Some artists really got into having fun with B-sides. Tracy Ullman had a hit with the single They Don't Know on the A-side. The B-side featured a track called The B-side, in which she, uh, well, you'll see. Hi. I'm Val from the band, <laughs> and I'm here on your B-side, going round and round on the turntable. <laughs> I've been missing your bedroom, isn't it? <laughs> People ask us, you know. That goes on for about four and a half minutes, but you get the idea. As we got deeper into the album era, the B-side got less and less respect. The B-side to metrics Help I'm Alive is Help I'm a B-side. There's a Lenny Kravitz song called B-side Blues. And when the punk band The Dead Kennedys released the cassette version of their In God We Trust Inc. EP, they left the B-side blank with this note. Home taping is killing record industry profits. We left this side blank so you can help. The British band Bow Wow Wow did something similar. But wait, not all B-sides were disrespected, especially, like I said, when 12-inch singles started appearing. Such a single has between two and four tracks. Anything longer, and you can make the argument that you've now ventured into EP territory, which is a completely different thing. Extended play recordings are a discussion for another time. U2 was on such a roll when they recorded the Joshua Tree album, they had more songs than they knew what to do with. When they issued Where the Streets Have No Name on a vinyl 12-inch single, they had no trouble finding solid material for the B-side. 
Streets came with not one, not two, but three extra tracks. And like I said, by this time we were calling these B-sides bonus tracks. This street single came with a rhythmic track called Race Against Time, Silver and Gold, which began life as a contribution to the Artists Against Apartheid project. And then there was this song, which Bonner wrote for his wife when he forgot her birthday. It was eventually re-recorded and released as a single on its own, but here is the 1987 original. The original B-side, actually it's more correct to refer to that as a bonus track, The Sweetest Thing, 1987. Never made the Joshua Tree album in 1987, but it did appear on a 12-inch single and later a CD single for Where the Streets Have No Name. And there's that term, CD single. That was something that appeared in the middle 80s as full CDs were still on the ascent. As 7-inch 45 RPM singles were to albums, CD singles were to CD albums with the notable exception. They could hold way more music. CD singles came in two sizes. The most common was the same size as a standard compact disc and was sometimes called a CD5 because they're five inches in diameter. But there were also smaller versions that were just three inches wide. Many CD players require a special adapter to play them. Some can't play them at all. But those three-inch CDs all but disappeared by the mid-90s. As far as anybody can tell, the first ever CD single was for the Dire Straits song Brothers in Arms in 1985, but it wasn't designed for general sale. It was mostly a promo item. The first commercially available CD single was issued on February 1st, 1986 by the British songwriter John Martin, based around his song Angeline. CD singles were especially big in the UK because the price of a full compact disc was really, really high compared to other markets around the world. I remember browsing through the Virgin and HMV megastores on Oxford Street in London and finding racks and racks and racks of CD singles. Some had three or four extra songs. Some had up to six songs, which should have classified them as EPs, but they were sold as CD singles. One band that really took advantage of this format was Oasis. Not only fans have to buy their albums, they absolutely needed all the CD singles because the bonus tracks were so unbelievably good. This was one of three extra songs that came on the CD single for Some Might Say from the What's the Story Morning Glory album. Acquiesce from Oasis, just one example of the band's great CD bonus tracks they released over the course of their career. It was really easy to get into collecting CD singles, too, especially if you didn't mind buying British imports, because they were the best. However, there were also some very good CD singles sold in Japan. My collection contains this 1998 Japanese release for the Foo Fighters, My Hero. It contains this cover. Foo Fighters CD single goodness from Japan. Sadly, we've come to the end of the era of the B-side and the bonus track, and it's all due to new digital realities. An examination of that next. A few more things about B-sides and bonus tracks before we wrap up. B-sides continue to exist with old-school 7-inch vinyl singles. Like vinyl albums, vinyl singles are still very much with us. They're not as big as albums, but they haven't gone away. Yet. 
12-inch singles, maxi singles with bonus tracks. They're there, but you know, you really got to hunt to find any new releases. CD singles are another issue. They're around, but they're nowhere near as prevalent as they used to be because in the late 90s, the music industry conspired to kill the CD single. They did not want to put out music this way anymore. The thinking became, what, you want this one song? Then buy the full CD. What do you mean you don't want all the other songs on the record? Too bad. Full price or nothing. And that was also a very big reason people jumped into file sharing when programs like Napster came along. But the major killer of the CD single has been digital music. Consumers are more and more concerned about listening to, and to a lesser extent, acquiring individual songs. That is killing sales of all compact discs, including the CD single. Most labels have given up on the CD single completely since about 2010. I heard a story about the British release of a Florence and the Machine CD single for Rabbit Heart that was packaged with a 7-inch single of the same song. Cool, right? Yeah, it sold 64 copies in the entire UK. However, we do see the occasional collection of B-sides and bonus tracks that are released in both physical and digital forms. And there is still some momentum from the old days with artists and labels referring to releases as A-sides and B-sides in a metaphorical way more than anything else. For example, acts like the Smashing Pumpkins and MGMT and others have been known to release two digital tracks at the same time with some kind of subtle hint that one of them is slightly more important than the other. That would be the equivalent of an old-school A-side. Still, it's not the same as it used to be. With no physical form to these releases, there aren't any sides. And with no sides, there's no need to fill them up with bonus tracks. And that makes me a little sad, because a certain type of music discovery is fading away. There's no more finding a song like Yellow Leadbetter from Pearl Jam, which was originally a bonus track on an imported version of the Jeremy CD single. Or a song like this, which was first found as a B-side to Brain Stew. It first appeared like this, but then it took on a life of its own, got re-recorded for the Nimrod album, and then became one of Green Day's biggest hits. While not dead yet, B-sides and bonus tracks seem to be on the way out, at least in their traditional form. There are still many, many ways to discover gems in the digital world, but it's not the same as flipping over a record and being surprised by what you found there. But technology is moving us in new directions, and we will inevitably follow along. B-sides and bonus tracks are quickly becoming digital debris. On part two, we'll talk about another part of music that's being squeezed out of existence— album art, and liner notes. Meanwhile, all these shows are available as podcasts. You can get them through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the platforms. They're all free, so you may binge at your leisure. Please rate and review if you can. If there's something you'd like to discuss, maybe you have some thoughts about this program or an idea for a topic you'd like me to cover, send an email to alan at alancross.ca. Plus, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget about my website that features all kinds of music news and information, as well as a daily newsletter. Find it at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. More on digital debris next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, 
I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint, if you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music, it's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Horn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done and, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. 
And, and a lot of times to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product. And, and that, that piece of art, as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much, we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, And, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and and Michael Jackson and uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.